Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're spiritually prepared to study the word through uh, confession of sin in silent prayer. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have to come before your throne of grace. It's a great privilege we have to have access to your presence through the high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, who opened the door, split the veil, gave us direct access to you because we are now uh, justified by his completed work on the cross. Now, Father, we pray that as we come together this evening, as we think about your word and reflect upon uh, the broad themes of Scripture and its significance within our study of Samuel that we can come to understand more, um, more in a more focused manner how First Samuel fits within the structure of Scripture and the importance of understanding and studying books of the Old Testament in relation to understanding all of the Bible. And Father, we pray you'd guide and direct our thinking in Christ's name. Amen. I know some folks who have pretty much done away with listening to the news. The news often sounds pretty hopeless. We look at just some of the things that have come out today. You hear that, yes, indeed, they finally reached an agreement in the nuclear negotiations with Iran in Switzerland. They have agreed to talk another day. You read the polls and you realize that, that Americans desperately want a, an agreement to be reached, but on the other hand, they don't trust Iran to keep any agreement that is reached. Thus is the split personality of the American populace. Learned this afternoon that the Iranian uh, government has dispatched their navy to, uh, to the uh, entry to the Red Sea coming up from... Uh, uh, coming up from the south, uh, one side you have Yemen, the other side you have uh, Somali. Wonderful piece of territory on on this earth, and they can shut down all traffic uh, through the Red Sea with the uh, with Iranians' military. We are moving inexorably toward a major war. A uh, <clears throat> Middle East an analyst who spoke to our group in Israel and writes a regular column. Uh, in Israeli papers 
believes that this is the beginning of a new 100-year war between the Sunnis and the Shia. Not a 30-year war, which if you follow uh, some of the folks who've been uh, on Fox News uh, recently, um, that is the view of some, that this is like another 30 years war. He thinks it's a 100 years war and that this will shape the everything over the next hundred years as the Shia in Iran seek to dominate the Sunnis. And this lays the groundwork for a massive nuclear arms race simply because we do not have an administration that projects strength and power. And so, like everybody else in the world, we look forward to a lot of primitive Arabs running around with nuclear weapons and wanting to kill each other and everybody else at the same time. It looks hopeless, but for believers, we should never give in to any kind of pessimism. There is always hope. When we look at the Old Testament and we look at the things that Israel went through, We know that God always supplies their need even in their darkest hour. We've looked at the various uh, dark times in the Old Testament, the the darkness that came from the paganism, the moral relativism during the time of the judges. And you can also think about the time of the Assyrian invasion when Sennacherim came down from the north and uh, destroyed the capital of Samaria. Uh, defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and then uh, entered into the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, laid siege to various uh, various towns and cities, including a very well-known one at Lachish, and then laying siege to Jerusalem. But there he was unsuccessful, and the angel of the Lord intervened and wiped out the army of the Assyrians overnight, and Sennacherib had to flee back to um, flee back to Assyria. And we think of the worst case scenario where cannibalism took place inside of Jerusalem, as people were pinned up and mothers ate their own children to survive during the siege of Jerusalem under the Babylonians, and so many tens of thousands were slaughtered by the Babylonians. And as Jeremiah looked back at that, as he has been in exile now in in Egypt, he looked back and he writes of that time in Lamentations 3.20, my soul still remembers. If you read up to that verse, what you are reminded of is just the, the depths of grief and sorrow that can come into the human soul. And just because we're believers doesn't mean we don't feel that. doesn't mean we don't experience those emotions. I often take people, and it's good at this time of year, to the time when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the language there, his grief, his sorrow, uh, he's under such emotional turmoil and, and pressure that he bled, I mean, that he sweated blood, blood oozed out of his pores, which is a known condition as a result of the pressure that he was under. Experiencing these kinds of horrible, intense emotions is not sin. But what you do with it may be sin. That's where sin, sin enters in, when you, if you yield to hopelessness. And see, this is the kind of situation that, that Jeremiah was in. He says, my soul still remembers. He's thinking about the horrors 
of the conquest, the destruction of Jerusalem and what happened to people he knew, what happened to his fellow countrymen. And he says, my soul sinks within me, but it doesn't stop there. In the next verse, he says, this I recall to mind and therefore have hope. Often when we memorize these verses, we start with that verse. But the verse we need to start with is the one before because it reminds us that, yes, life can seem pretty overwhelming and hopeless at times. And he says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Hope is not based on emotion. It's not based on something that makes us feel good. It's not based on sentimentality. It's based on thinking through the realities of living in God's world under God's sovereign control. He says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. And there's a, there's a passion there that we who survived, even though we are now in the diaspora in Egypt, we are not consumed. We are still alive. Therefore, God still has a plan for our life. And it is through the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. He is always eternally loving and compassion, mercy, flows out of his love. And he says, they, referring back to those compassions, are new every morning. Each day we experience the grace of God. And that grace of God is based on his immutability, which is exhibited here through his characteristic of faithfulness. God is faithful to himself. God is always faithful to his covenant. And then Jeremiah concludes by saying, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him twice. At the, in 321, he reaches a conclusion. Therefore, I hope positive. It's not just wishful optimism. It is a certainty that God is still on the throne. God is still in charge, even though things look terrible. It's not hopeless because God still has a plan. Now, the reason I went there is because this is parallel to the kind of situation that we find in uh, the southern kingdom of Judea at the opening of 1 Samuel. I've spent the last six lessons going through the circumstances, the background, the overview of the situation at the beginning of Samuel, that this is a hopeless time from a human perspective. It is a time when Israel has has, has so disobeyed God that they no longer are turning to God to deliver them. They have reached a stage of uh, cultural hopelessness. They're not trusting in God. Their, their, their leaders are apostate, as exhibited by Eli, the, the, the high priest at the beginning of 1 Samuel. There are very few who are focused on the God who made those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would uh, provide this land for, uh, for his people and he would, he would never, uh, never desert them. And so we, we see a situation where people have just deserted the Lord, but God hasn't deserted them. And as we begin in 1 Samuel, we, our eyes go to one individual, unknown, unseen. Uh, she's the object of scorn and hatred in, in her own home, and that is Hannah. We won't look at her a lot tonight, but she is the focal point here. She has hope. She never has lost hope in the midst of her despair. And I pointed this out last time. When you go through, read through verses 8 through 18, 
And we read these terms as, as, as she just breaks down bitterly weeping at the end of verse 7. Then, then her husband asks her, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? She's, she's so distraught that she's just, she's not eating. She's lost her appetite. I mean, this is something that is going on over a period of time. She is, we would say she's become very depressed. And though she's depressed, she hasn't lost hope in the Lord because what is said about Hannah and her spiritual life is, is on a high level. It's higher than, than is said about any other woman in the Old Testament. She is given a, a great deal of positive press here in the first chapter. And so she is, uh, her heart is grieved in, in the third question. And so, uh, Hannah then just leaves the table, uh, while they're there in Shiloh. And then she goes to the t- a tabernacle to pour out her heart to the Lord. In verse 10, we read she's in bitterness of soul, and she wept in anguish. And then as she continues to pray, and Eli uh, misinterprets what's going on and thinks she's drunk, uh, verse 15, uh, after he uh, tells her to quit drinking and go home and sober up, uh, she says to him, <clears throat> I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. And I've come here to pour out my soul before the Lord. And she then says in verse 16, it's out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I've spoken. Now notice how many times it talks about grief and complaint and sorrow and bitterness. Uh, she is in extreme distress, but what, where does she turn? She doesn't turn to pop psychology. She doesn't turn to uh, the latest pharmaceuticals for depression. She doesn't uh, lash out in anger and hostility and bitterness and violence towards uh, her rival and the source of her misery, Penina. She doesn't do any of these things. She turns to the Lord. She throws herself upon the, the grace and the mercy of the Lord. So she is a great picture of what Jeremiah states in Jeremiah chapter 3, and that is that her hope is in the Lord that he will be faithful to his covenant. And as a result of this, as she is turning to the Lord to solve her problem in her little obscure village of Ramah in, um, in, in Ephraim in the northern, northern kingdom there, as she pours out her heart to the Lord, the Lord is not only going to deliver her, but through that he is going to deliver all of Israel. Now what we see as we get into 1 Samuel, I want to wrap up a few things in terms of our uh, introduction and overview, is that this is important history. There are so many folks who don't understand the significance of history. It's so sad that we live in a world today when history is taught uh, it's taught poorly, and it can't be taught well because nobody can come in and really teach from divine viewpoint in the classroom. But uh, some people do get uh, get their licks in and do a good job, but unfortunately much of history is taught within a very distorted, fantasized, liberal view of history that rejects the, any sense of, of, uh, of, of absolutes. What we as Christians need to understand is that history is his story. True history is the story of the outworking of God's plan. It is his narrative. He is the one who has the, he is the only one who has the right to shape the narrative and to define it. He, he, there's only one person who can spin it correctly 
and that's God. And that's what the historical books of the Bible are designed to do, is to teach something. We've lost that since the ancients understood this, that that history wasn't just learning facts and figures and and battles and and names and, and dates, but that history was designed to teach. It was pedagogical in the hope that people would learn something from history. Of course, we know that for the most part, people, uh, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. But that is its purpose, and that's its purpose in the Bible, is to teach and to instruct so that we do not repeat our past errors and past mistakes. Now, biblically speaking, when you look at history and the history of the Bible, we realize that it's the Jews that are the real inventors of history. You go sit in any uh, secular classroom on history, and they'll tell you the Greeks invented history, but the Jews invented history. Uh, Herodotus wrote in about the 5th century B.C., but it was a 1,000 years before that that, that uh, Moses wrote, and uh, about 14, about um, 900 years that Joshua wrote and the, and Samuel wrote probably is the one who wrote uh, Judges and, and the authors of Samuel and they were writing history in order to teach subsequent generations about the acts of God that God is the one who rules in history and God is the one who works out his purposes in history so that even when the historical circumstances look as dark as they possibly can we can always have hope and confidence uh, confidence in God. And the writers of the Old Testament were able to write history as an absolute is because, number one, they're inspired by God the Holy Spirit, but number two, because they believed in, in absolutes. So as we look at history, I want to remind us of four things that we have seen. First of all, While God controls or oversees history, history is the result of human decisions. On the microcosm, your life and my life are the result of all the decisions that we've made in life. Some of these are very small decisions that ended up having great consequences. Some of them were decisions that we thought would have uh, great consequences that actually didn't. Some of the decisions that we made we thought were good, wise decisions. Later, we weren't so sure. Sometimes God lets us make good, wise decisions, but the results aren't always positive. Always, that's, this is a thing to warn yourself against. You can evaluate a set of circumstances. You can seek wise counsel. You can study all the pros and cons and reach a conclusion that, that a certain course of action is the wisest course of action, and it's the course of action where I can most glorify God. And as you take that path, you think all the good things are going to happen. And then it doesn't, and then everything falls apart. How many times in Scripture have we seen great believers face great opposition? Just think of the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ himself commissioned Paul to a course of action. He didn't have just some mystical, subjective uh, vision and say, well, this is God's will because Jesus spoke to me. I mean, when he said that, Jesus really had spoken to him. And he made the decision that he was going to follow the Lord and that he was going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But what happened? He was persecuted. The Judaizers followed him, and they slandered him, and they maligned him, and they stirred up riots against him. And he was beaten, and he was arrested, and he was thrown in jail. 
and and numerous other thing hardships he he faced, and yet he never said, "Well, it's getting a little rough. Maybe this wasn't God's will. Maybe this wasn't a wise decision." Many times, uh, the right decision doesn't always feel right after you make it, because when we're doing the right thing in the devil's world, there's often uh, a lot of opposition. So God controls and oversees history, but history is the result of human decisions. Your life is the result of human decisions, and when we put a bunch of humans together, then we have even greater uh, greater decisions. So God oversees it, but not at the expense of individual human responsibility and human decisions, so that when humans make bad decisions, then there are horrible consequences. But God is still in control. Second thing we've learned is that the ultimate causative factor in history, it isn't economics. It's not which school of economics you hold to. It is not whether you're even a capitalist or uh, a utilitarian or whether you are a Marxist or a socialist. None of that matters. What matters is your relationship to God. When Israel is told in Leviticus 26, if you obey me, then these things are going to happen. You're going to have plenty of rain. In other words, your obedience spiritually is going to impact the environment. You know, we could almost have a doctrine here related to anthropogenic global disaster. It's due to sin, folks. That's what the Bible says. If you walk with the Lord, God's going to provide the right kind of climate, and you're going to have prosperity. You're going to win battles. 10,000 will set to flight 100,000. doesn't have anything to do with your military theory, your technology, your military skill and training. It ultimately has to do with that causative reality God sets into uh, the warp and woof of human existence, and that is our relationship to him. If we're walking with him, and this applies nationally as well as individually. If we're walking with him, God is going to take care of the details. If you're not, then God is going to take care of your tail. One way or the other. He's either going to give you a spiritual whipping or he is going to protect you and prosper you depending on your... That's the causative issue is our relationship with God. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't focus on learning the best economic system, political system, all these other things. Certainly, we should do that. But the end result is, and the the bottom line is, the causative factor is always our relationship to God. It's not fatalistic determinism or materialism or Marxism, history isn't something that's purely random, neither is it cyclical like the Greeks thought or the ancient Hindus thought, uh, even modern Hinduism. It's cyclical. It just goes around and around and around. Now, we do see that there are cycles in history. We saw cycles in Judges, didn't we? As it goes in a direction, history always goes forward, even though there may be cycles within that history. So the ultimate causative factor is how people respond to the revelation of God. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that history has meaning, purpose, and direction, and that is defined by God, and we can't get to that unless we submit to the revelation of God. 
Third thing we've seen is that failure in history is the result of rebellion against God. When people rebel against God, then it always leads to collapse. Now, there are certain patterns. I've gone over these in other lessons, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. But if you rebel against God's authority, you put the authority where? Somewhere in creation. And usually that's right in the center of the human skull, between his ears. And so it's the emphasis is on human ability, human mental ability, human intellection uh, to be able to solve the problems. And so we have this cycle in ancient Greece where the philosophers rejected the mythology of the Greeks that religion doesn't solve anything, and so we're going to turn to uh, philosophy. Well, philosophy ultimately couldn't solve the problems that face the human race, and so the intellectual solution was thrown out and replaced by the irrational solution. The rational solution is thrown out, replaced by the irrational or the mystical solution. Because what happens when you lose faith in, in human reason is you become skeptical. And skepticism, all, we can't live as skeptics. Skepticism always leads to mysticism. I got a master's degree in philosophy at the University of St. Thomas, and and one of my professors in in uh, medieval philosophy was a guy by the name of Father Kennedy. And one day in class, as my eyelids were about half closed and he was droning on, I heard him make this statement that that rationalism always fails and leads to skepticism, and skepticism always leads to mysticism. And I shot up bolt upright and wrote that down. That was the best thing I'd heard anybody. That was worth the cost of all those courses because that summed it up in a nutshell. And only only a couple of times in history have we been rescued from the collapse that will always come from mysticism. It happened once before when Jesus Christ came the first time and rescued the Greco-Roman Empire from the collapse that was coming would have come eventually due to the fact that they were uh, mired in mysticism and subjectivism. Well, now Western civilization has gone through all of those cycles. We came out of the Middle Ages. There was a rejection of all religion at, after the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment. There was a turning back just like it had happened in the ancient world. We turned to the Greek philosophers. You had a restoration of rationalism with Descartes and a restoration of empiricism uh, with Locke and Hume and others, and that, uh, Locke and Barclay and others, and then skepticism from Hume, and that led to the subjectivism of, of Immanuel Kant. And once you get into the subjectivism of Immanuel Kant in the late 1700s, there's no longer any hope for objective truth anymore for that which is absolute truth, and all objectivity is going to be lost. Now, it's taken about 200 years for that to work itself out, and it has under what is known as postmodernism, because the Enlightenment was thought to be modernism. Modern man rejected uh, religion, and then once that failed to provide answers, then they there's a shift to what comes after modernism is postmodernism. And postmodernism is just as subjective, if not more so, and rejects absolutely the existence of absolute truth. You can't know truth. Now, let me tell you how this impacts all of us on an everyday level. 
You get called up. You get that letter in the mail that your friends and neighbors down at City Hall are inviting you to come down and sit on a panel of 12 in order to adjudicate a trial. You believe there is absolute right or wrong, there, there, that you can come to a knowledge of absolute truth, whether this person did it or didn't. You believe in truth. But you've got probably five or six other people on the jury that don't believe in truth. They believe truth is based on just your perception. There's 12 different views of truth in that jury room. And each one is just as valid as the other. Because epistemologically, that's a big word for your theory of how you know truth. Epistemologically, they've rejected reason and data and and evidence as a basis for getting to truth. Now, I want you to think about that a minute. If you're sitting in a courtroom and you're dealing with a child molester or you're dealing with a, a, a spouse abuser and you're sitting there with people who don't believe you can truly know what happened, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get a hung jury. You're going to get a verdict of 5 to 7 or 7 to 5 and and almost half those people in the courtroom don't think you can really know what happened because they've bought into postmodernism so profoundly that they don't believe you can know objective truth at all. And once you get to that point in a culture, your legal system is over with. They're just waiting to play taps. And that's where we are in our culture. Our legal system is done because it's based on the on people being responsible and people believing in absolute truth and that you can know absolute truth and make decisions. And guess what? We've got a culture that, as each decade goes by, is more mired in mysticism and subjectivism and the rejection of knowledge of truth. It's not just an issue of religious truth and whether or not you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's an issue of everyday truth. It's pounded. How many times do we hear every day about politicians who violate certain regulations or laws and nobody holds them accountable? They only hold certain people accountable because once you remove truth from the scenario and objectivity, then all that is left is either emotionalism or power. That the person who comes out on top isn't the person who's right. It's the person who has the best propaganda, who has the best makeup machine, who has the best uh, uh, best clothing, the person who can project the right image, and the person who can manipulate uh, the powers that be behind the scenes the best, and it no longer has anything to do with truth. And once you get to that point in a culture, you're dead. It's over with. You just don't know it yet. And that's where we are as a nation, and that's what where Israel was as a nation by the time we get to the opening of 1 Samuel. So what do, would we call this kind of a period? We look in history, there was a period that wasn't nearly that bad, even though the Enlightenment folks uh, from the 1600s on wanted us to think that. They looked back at what preceded them, and they said that was the Dark Ages. It was dark because they believed in the Bible. Now, they may not have all agreed on the Bible. They may not have really, really understood what the Bible said, and they may have misrepresented it at times, 
But they understood that the Bible was absolute, undeniable, unshakable, objective truth. They couldn't quite agree all the time as to what that was, but they knew that existed. After the Enlightenment, they said, well, God doesn't speak to us at all. We can't know what he says. We just have our reason and our experience, and so people are going to then come up with different different views. That's called moral relativism. Now, it didn't work itself out fully that way until you got into the 19th century and 20th century because there was a residual of impact of absolutes. They tried to hold to absolutes. They saw what would happen if you didn't hold to absolutes. They tried to hold to absolutes while rejecting the basis for holding to absolutes. And it took about 200 years of philosophical thought before uh, that castle in the sky was completely obliterated, and then they gave themselves over completely to subjectivism and to moral relativism. Now, Israel truly did have a dark age, and they had rejected the light of God's word, and they had replaced it with the darkness of human thinking, and they had completely given themselves over uh, to moral relativism. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And now they find themselves at the beginning of uh, 1 Samuel to be under the complete domination of the Philistines. Now, they had cried out for deliverance. Actually, they, when they got to the last cycle, they didn't cry out for deliverance from the, from the Philistines, but God did provide them with a deliverer, and that was Samson. Samson was ineffectual. He was ineffectual because he was disobedient to God the whole time. He was just like the people. They got the leader they deserved that reflected their values, just like we have leaders in Washington, D.C., who we deserve because they reflect the majority values in this country. Now, they may not reflect the majority values in this room. They may not reflect the majority values of most of the people in Houston or most of the people in Texas, but they do reflect the majority views of most of the people in this country. Otherwise, we wouldn't put up with it, and we wouldn't have those people in power. So they are in power, and they're leading us in the same direction Samson led the Israelites, which is nowhere. And they stayed... uh, in spiritual blindness, which is exhibited by uh, Samson's blindness, he reflected the blind. That was that reflected the blindness of the people. Now you think about it: the Israelites were where they were because God brought them there. Some three to four hundred years earlier, God had brought them there out of slavery in Egypt. What was God's promise? God's promise was that he was going to take them to a land of milk and honey. Now, for years, I have heard people wonder, what does this phrase, milk and honey, describe? We want to translate it literally. It's not talking about a a literal milk and literal honey. Milk was baby food. Honey was baby food. We don't always call it baby food. Now, we have another term for it. We call it comfort food. 
This was what you got at home. This is what your mother fed you. The home was a place of security. It was a place of comfort, warmth of your mother, tranquility. Milk and honey were the, was a basic comfort food in the Middle East. And just like if you grew up in, in southeast Texas, then you might think the fried chicken, cornbread, and black-eyed peas was comfort food. Or if you grew up a little further south in South Texas, you'd think that enchiladas and tamales were comfort food. Every place, every culture has their comfort food, and that's what God was saying when he said, I'm taking you to a land of milk and honey. What God is saying is, I'm taking you to a place where I'm going to give you uh, peace and prosperity. You're not going to have to worry about things. It's going to be a place where you can uh, where you can be happy, and it's going to be a place where uh, you don't have to worry about uh, your enemies, you're going to be free from uh, oppression and from fear. Is that what we find when we get to the beginning of Samuel? They're, they're fearful. The country's in, in collapse. It's imploded because of their uh, spiritual rebellion against God. And there's only one thing that can save them, and that's God. God has to do it. Why does God have to deliver Israel at this point? Why doesn't Israel just implode and just get scattered upon the dust of history at this point? Because God made a little promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 that God was going to give him this, this land and it would be his. Now, Abraham never owned any of that land, so God's got to fulfill his promise. He has to be faithful. In the same way, when God makes promises to you and me in the church age, as church age believers, God has to be faithful to those promises. That's why we can always have hope, no matter how negative the circumstances may be, no matter how dark it appears today, we can always have hope and confidence in God because God gave us a picture of this in the Old Testament. When Israel was on the ash heap, when they had failed miserably, and if they had been any other people in all of the world, God would have let them just disappear from the pages of history. But God couldn't do that with Israel. He had to deliver them, and he delivers them in a remarkable way, and it's based completely upon God's grace. There's a precondition for their, for their deliverance, and that is that they had to be humble. They needed somebody who would express some humility. And this is what we see in James 4, 6. Uh, the principle laid down, quoting from the Old Testament, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And who do we see in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1 that exhibits genuine humility? It's Hannah. She humbles herself before God. Now, I don't know that she made every decision right or that she responded in every situation right, but I do know that she recognized in the midst of all of her uh, sorrow and grief and, and pain and misery that the only solution was God and that she wasn't bargaining anything with God when she made the vow about Samson, but she was focused on the fact that that. God would be the only one who could de deliver her from her pain, and consequently, God was going to use her, a truly humble believer, to deliver the nation from from their pain. 
So the lesson that we need to learn from this as we focus, as we look at the broad picture of what's happening in Israel as, as a nation and narrowing it down is that no matter how badly we fail, just as no matter how badly Israel failed, no matter how dark it got, God was always going to provide the answers. And there's always hope because as long as we're alive, God always provides the solution. Now, one last thing I want to do as we set the stage for getting into Samuel is to focus on the importance of Samuel in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of people know we can look at a few things in, in Samuel. We say, this guy's really important. He's the last judge. He's the, the, the first major prophet that comes on the scene that's named. He's the one who's going to anoint the first uh, king of Israel. We know Samuel's important. But if you dig a little deeper in the scripture, you can discover that Samuel is exceptionally important. If you want to, you can turn to Deuteronomy. A lot of what happens after Deuteronomy is the outworking of Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, I'm not going to go through all the passage, all the, the section. God, Mo, Moses expresses a divine promise to Israel. It is a messianic prophecy. Make no mistake, this is clearly a prophecy that can only be fulfilled by the Messiah. As it is stated in Matthew, uh, Matthew, excuse me, Deuteronomy, eighteen, verse, uh, verse fifteen. Moses tells them, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst." Now, there's a lot of things to pay attention to in terms of what that meant to be like Moses. There are some who came along and said, "Well, this was Joshua," but Joshua wasn't a prophet like Moses. He was different. None of the Old Testament prophets were like Moses. The one that came the closest is going to be Samuel. And Samuel is remarkably similar to Moses, but but Samuel wasn't the prophet. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So we know that he's going to be a prophet. He's going to be Jewish. He's raised up from among your brethren, and you are to listen to him. Then you skip down to verse 18. Where God is speaking, Moses says in verse, introduces this in verse 17 saying, And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. It's almost a repeat of verse 15. When the Holy Spirit does repeats, you better pay attention. I remember when I first taught school, when I got out of college, and I would have everybody look at me, pay attention, eyes on me. I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you once. And then they would say, well, Mr. Dean, would you say that again? I said, no, I don't do repeats. When God does repeats, pay attention. God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, this is a foundation In the Old Testament, they understood that this was a unique prophet, that that no prophet in the Old Testament fit the bill. And it didn't refer to the, the prophets as a collective whole. When you get into the New Testament, you see clearly how the New Testament writers, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, clearly understood this. And this comes out of the mouths of the people of that time. In John 1.21, 
the Pharisees come out to interview John the Baptist, and they, they asked ask him, who are you? And he said, are you Elijah? And he said, no. And they said, are you what? The prophet. That's what they're talking about. They're going back to Deuteronomy 18.15. Are you that prophet like Moses that we've been looking for? Are you the prophet? And he said, no. In verse 25, they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor what? Nor the prophet. See, they, they understood what that verse, who that verse was talking about. It was the Messiah. In Acts 3.22, Moses truly said to the fathers, this is who talking? Peter. Peter said, Moses truly said to the fathers, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And Peter is applying this to Jesus of Nazareth. He is that prophet. He is the Messiah. In Acts 7.37, who's speaking here? It's Stephen. Stephen and his long indictment of the religious leaders in Jerusalem for which he was stoned. And in the middle of that, he says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Again, he's applying that this is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Messiah. So as we wrap up this whole series, I've done seven lessons on this introduction. Moses and Samuel are two prophets who foreshadowed the prophet, the Messiah. And it's interesting when you get into the details of Samuel's life, how he mirrors Moses. He's a prophet like Moses, but he's not fully like Moses. He doesn't fit the bill. He's not the Messiah. But remember, Samuel takes a unique position, and one of my points is that, that like Moses, he stands at the crossroads of Israel's history so that when you look at, at, at Samuel, there's a change, that, a mammoth change that takes place in the direction of of, of Israel's history. So let's just kind of run through these a little bit, and you'll see from the comparison how significant Samuel really is. First of all, when you look at at Moses and compare that Moses and Samuel, you discover that they both have remarkable childhoods. Moses' mother is under threat if she has a male child, so she hides a baby. She take, he's taken away from her home, from his home. He's put in a little basket and put out on the Nile, and he's picked up by the daughter of Pharaoh and raised in Pharaoh's household. So he's taken away from his parents at a young age and raised in the household of strangers. Samuel. When he is weaned, which is probably three, four, five, maybe uh, somewhere in there, he's taken away or he's given away by his mother to Eli, and he's raised in the household of strangers. This is seen in Exodus 2, 1, 1 and 2, and verse 9 for Moses, and 1 Samuel 1, 20 and 28 for Samuel. So they both are taken from their parents and reared by others. Under point two, second point of comparison, both of them, as they matured, refused to be influenced by the paganism and apostasy around them. In Exodus 2, 11 to 12, we see something of Moses. And then in Hebrews eleven twenty five, it says he was, he was willing to give up the riches of Egypt to take on the reproach of Christ. 
He understood his place in history. Because the writer of Hebrews says, for the reproach of Christ, he understood that he played a significant role in the, in the flow to the Messiah. And in 1 Samuel 2, 22 to 26, uh, Samuel doesn't cave in, doesn't, he's not influenced by the apostasy that is, that's around him, uh, through the sons of Eli and all of the apostasy related to temple worship at that time. Third, now this is an interesting point of comparison. Both Moses and Samuel, this doesn't happen with anybody else, both Moses and Samuel received their initial revelations from the Lord as God speaks to them. God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. Samuel is asleep in the temple, and there is a lamp on, then the lamp doesn't get consumed. The bush doesn't get consumed, the lamp doesn't consume the oil. There's something miraculous in terms of the light, which I think speaks of the revelation that they're getting from God. This is seen in Exodus 3, 3 through 10, and 1 Samuel 3, 3 through 14. Fourth area of comparison. In both cases, we, we don't see this anywhere else, just with Moses and Samuel. Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel. You see that God uh, addresses them by calling their names twice in Exodus 3, 4 and 1 Samuel 3, 10. So, God got their attention. This doesn't just happen by accident. Fifth, now this one is really interesting because the context of how you would translate this into English is different. But if you read this in the Hebrew, the same form of the same adjective is applied to both Moses and Samuel, and this word isn't applied to any other prophet in the Old Testament. Both are identified by this same adjective, ne'aman. Now, the root is aman, which is a word we say when we say amen. Uh, it has to do with being faithful, with believing, with confirming something, consecrating something. And in Numbers 12.7 and 1 Samuel 3.20, which I put on the board, you have these statements in Numbers 12.7. God says, not so with my servant Moses. He is Ne'eman. It's translated faithful in all my house. But then in 1 Samuel 3.20 we read, And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established. Samuel Ne'eman as a prophet to the Lord. Same form of the word used in both places applied to only Samuel and Moses. Interesting. Sixth point of comparison, both are commanded by the Lord at the beginning of their ministries to pronounce a judgment on a sinful, on sinful corrupt leaders who've abused and oppressed Israel. So Moses, of course, is pronouncing judgment upon Egypt and the Pharaoh and Samuel, after he gets his initial revelation from God, which is a, uh, which reveals the judgment God is going to bring on Eli in the house of Eli. When Samuel got up in the morning, Eli said, so, what did God tell you last night? And Samuel told him everything that God had told him, that God is going to judge you and your household and they will be, uh, your, your house will be, will be destroyed. 
Seventh, both of them killed an enemy of Israel with their own hands, and immediately afterward they went into exile. Now, the circumstances were different, but it's a similar pattern. Moses sees an Egyptian overseer uh, abusing a Hebrew slave, and so he steps in and protects the Hebrew slave and kills the Egyptian overseer. And then he is wanted by Pharaoh for murder, and he flees to Midian. So it's a little different scenario, but he protects and he kills an enemy with his own hands and then goes into exile. Samuel, this happens later on in his ministry when Saul is told, has been told to destroy the Amalekites, every man, woman, and child, every single man, woman, and child, and all their sheep and all their goats and all their cattle. Uh, Samuel didn't do it. I mean, excuse me, Saul didn't do it. Saul left him alive and said, well, you know, I can probably get some uh, some ransom money for Agag, the king. I can probably, you know, sell the sheep and the goats for something, and they've got a lot of jewels and everything. I can make myself rich. And so we're told that, that when uh, uh, Samuel heard the bleeding of sheep, he goes into the tent and he says, what's this noise I hear? And he turned around, he reached over, and he grabbed Saul's sword, and he turned around, and the King James says, he hacked Agag to pieces. That's what I call being a true minister of the Lord. That's ministry. doesn't fit most people's concept of ministry, but that was ministry. So, and then what? We don't hear much from Samuel after that. We, we only see him when he pops up to... Uh, anoint David, and that's it. He's It's a self-imposed exile. Eighth point of comparison, they both wrote down regulations or laws, rules, mishpatim in the Hebrew, that were deposited for, for the Lord and were used to guide the nation. What Moses wrote down were the laws, the Torah. Samuel wrote down guidance for the nation under a king, for Samuel 10.25. Ninth point of comparison is that both of them functioned as prophets, priests, and judges. Both functioned, both are called prophets, both uh, are called judges, and they judged Israel, and both are, neither are called priests, but they perform the roles of a priest. They built altars, and they offered sacrifices. The verses that emphasize that in here, I believe, are... Exodus seventeen fifteen and twenty four four for Moses and Leviticus eight fourteen to twenty nine for Moses and First Samuel seven nine and seventeen for uh, for Samuel. He was uh, in, according to the First Chronicles six genealogy. He was descendant from uh, Levi. He was a Levitical priest. He's called an Ephraimite because that's where his family lived. But he was a Levitical priest. Tenth. Next to last point, tenth, both stood at the crossroads of Israel's history. Moses delivers them from slavery in Egypt and takes them to the promised land, has to deal with their griping and complaining the whole way, but he is the deliverer, the promised deliverer who shapes their future, taking them out of Egypt. Samuel delivers them and sets the deliverance in motion for the Philistines. In 1 Samuel 7, under while Samuel is judging Israel, the Philistines are defeated so that they are no longer uh, oppressing Israel. 
in the land as conquerors. They're going to be a pain for the rest of the book, but they are uh, they're 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 defeated under Samuel's leadership, and then Samuel anoints the king David, who will eventually uh, destroy the Philistines. And then last, both of them had two sons. They each had two sons, but their sons had no significant role in uh, Israel after that. Uh, instead, they, they their sons were set apart and unrelated non-family members were uh, set up, called by the Lord to uh, lead Israel from that point forward. So what do we learn from all of this? Everything we've looked at in terms of this introduction that are going to be key principles that are going to be hammered through through all of Samuel. First of all, everyone, every king, every prophet, every priest, every judge is under the authority of God. That's what we learned from the, from the book of Judges. When we remove ourselves from the authority of God, then we set ourselves up as the ultimate authority, and then we have uh, 350 million kings in the United States. Everybody is a God unto themselves. Everybody is a ruler unto themselves, and this just leads to pure uh, fragmentation. What the Bible teaches is everybody's under the authority of God, and therefore everyone will be held accountable to God at some point. Second thing we learn is that the Lord uses the everyday believer. You look back through Judges, and you look at people like Gideon, who seem to be a nobody, and you look at uh, Deborah and Barak, and you look at the other Judges. They were not... Uh, people who were at, at the top of this uh, society page. They were not people who were the uh, political dynasties of that time. They were individuals who were willing to be used by God in order to deliver the people. And so Hannah especially fits that char- uh, 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 characterization. She is unknown, unseen, uh, abused by another wife, uh, in the backwater of Israel, and God uses her because of her humility. The point is that God can use every one of us if we will stand our ground spiritually and be ready to and willing to be trained by God and used by God to serve Him. God can do great things through us. Third thing we've observed is that the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God who governs creation and rules in the affairs of mankind, in the affairs of nations, and in the affairs of people. God is still in charge. It's not Barack Obama. It's not John Boehner. It's not McConnell. It's not Pelosi. It's not Harry Reid. It's not the Democrat Party or the Republican Party or the Libertarian Party. It is God who is in control. And you know, and God uses people's bad decisions and good decisions to work out his purposes. When we live in a time of, of uh, negative volition, then we're going to see the consequences of that negative volition and those uh, horrible decisions work themselves out in history. But God is still in charge, and he still is in control. Fourth thing that we see is that personal obedience and devotion to God results in blessing first to the individual and second to the nation. As goes the individual, so goes the nation. And believers still have an impact uh, 
as the light of the world shining in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And the bottom line is where we started. God is always faithful. He's never faithless. He never goes back on his word. We can always depend upon him. We are never to succumb to hopelessness or defeatism. As, as Jeremiah said, this I recall to mind and therefore have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded of your faithfulness. As you were faithful to Israel in the midst of their darkest days, in the midst of their greatest apostasy and rebellion to you, so you are always faithful to us, even when we are walking according to the sin nature, when even when we are letting ourselves be influenced and overrun by the world system, there's still hope because... We're still alive, and you still forgive us when we confess our sins, and you still extend uh, the olive branch of grace trying to get us to return to you that if we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, you will exalt us. And, Father, we pray that we might remember this lesson of grace and the real principle of advancement and exaltation, that we need to be humble under your authority. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.